Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm glad that we've got guys together for Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. We've got the power panel already in place. Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Peter Kapster. Gentlemen, welcome. Hi, Bill. Good Hi, Bill. Thanks, Bill. All right. Anybody, uh, Tom Brock, you want to sing to get things started? I've been <laughs> down one time, been down two times. Okay. I don't even Never know what song that is, but I, I would like it, it was to just stop. On. That was the lead in music. Oh, yeah, of course. Never okay. coming, never going back again. That's right. Yeah, but that's just the instrumental part we play in the... <laughs> All right. Why did I even invite that? Well, yeah, I'm just trying to be You're good a man here. of courage. I am a man of courage. <laughs> anyway, we want to let you know or take your questions, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Uh, if you've ever had a question you've wanted to ask your pastor, but maybe just didn't know if you could, or now's the time to do it, so... Send whatever question you like. We'll do our best to answer it. All right, gentlemen, let's get things started with uh, a distinction here. I'd really like to get your your take on it. Uh, Philippians 4, 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. And in Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So we have the peace of of God and the peace with God. What's the difference? Well, I think it's a good distinction because the one is talking about the initially surrendering and coming to Jesus. So, you know, peace with God, because that's what Jesus came to do is to bring peace between the sinner and uh, God, the father through his sacrifice on the cross. The one in Philippians is now talking to believers, not people that need to come to Jesus, but people that already know him and now they need not uh, the peace, you know, with God. They need the peace of God. And sometimes his peace isn't the same as our peace. Hey, we don't understand it in the same way. I think most of us would feel we'd be at peace if we had more money, if we had a better house, if we didn't have health problems, whatever else. That's not the peace he's talking about. It is the peace of knowing Jesus and in turn living in this world for him and recognizing that you have an eternal life and you have a lot to do right here as his ambassador. I like it. Peace of God, peace with God. Mm-hmm. Distinction. Tom Brock, Peter, anyone? Go ahead, Peter. Yeah, I, I just I think uh, Parrish nailed it. I think, you know, one is talking about the reconciling peace of the cross that, that took place, that, that bridges the gap of our sin, while the other one is related to the peace that God provides in the midst of the absence and the difficulty and the circumstances of this world. I was just I was in class this morning, and just as we were wrapping up class, uh, a young woman. We were we were talking about euthanasia. We were talking about the voluntary taking of life and what constitutes that. And and she brought up the idea that her uncle is now facing his second round of cancer. And and this time, as cancer comes back, as I'm sure many of our listeners know, when it comes back that second time, it's usually because the origin cells didn't actually. Um, they weren't impacted by maybe the chemotherapy or the radiation. And so the origin cells that create these secondary cells that, that are running roughshod and creating t- tumors, they, they mutate and they're able to resist the chemotherapy. And so in this case, <clears throat> the, this young woman's uncle uh, made the decision 
to say that he didn't want to have any further invasive therapeutic treatment uh, because in so doing, he would maybe lose his capacity to speak and some other things. And he wanted to spend the last six months that he would roughly have, whatever that timeline looks like, to be able to speak and to eat and to take joy with his family. And, and the conversation would lead to the idea and he would be at peace with this. And I think what was <clears throat> unearthed as part of our conversation in the class this morning was that that peace obviously can't be dependent upon the circumstances, as Parrish was talking about in the world around us. And, and we talked further and just the idea that we spend so much time trying to realize our own self and realize our purposes and realize our gifts and realize all sorts of desires and dreams that are much more a fabric of, of an American philosophy or a Western philosophy of life as opposed to a kingdom philosophy of life. And when those circumstances don't work out, we find ourselves not at peace and we might even be questioning God. And so here's a man who's facing profoundly difficult circumstances that are going to lead him into the waters of death without any question at all. And somehow he's at peace about that. And, and so I think it, that just brought into stark <coughs> contrast, right? What the, 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 the falsity of the peace of the idolatry in this world versus the true peace that can only come from the shepherd who will even lead us through those dark valleys. And it was, it was just sort of a stunning sacred moment in class that I think highlights what Parrish was talking about about the difference between the reconciling peace of God with our sin versus the peace he provides to believers as he is the shepherd in our life. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. I really have nothing to add. You were, yeah, we were in class together, Brock, so it was the same, <laughs> the same story. I don't know, Peter, if you remember, maybe you do, Tom, um, I don't know if it was Josephus or whoever talked about the early Christians going to the arenas and being torn apart and being lit like candles and everything else. And one of the things that hit the uh, early Romans hard in the arena, because they were used to the gladiators and things like that, is how many of these Christians died peacefully. How many of them yeah. simply accepted their fate mm -hmm. and looked forward and were singing. Mm -hmm. And it really had an impact. And I think that's why we saw how quickly Rome in, a, in three centuries really went from being totally pagan to really adopting and accepting Christianity. Mm -hmm. be curious to uh, talk a little bit today about the ministering spirits, also known as uh, angels, uh, when we think of uh, Peter in his cell chained between two guards, and suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. And then I also think of, we're studying the book of Daniel, the first six chapters this week with at Faith Radio, when you think of the angel who shut the mouths of the lions, you think of all the ministering angels and the work are we seeing that today among believers? Because I know a lot of secular people like to say, well, mm -hmm. I'm not really spiritual, but I know I've got my guardian angel. Mm -hmm. And I, I understand angels to be ministering uh, spirits to believers, mm -hmm. not to yeah. unbelievers. Yeah. yeah. And I think, too, that we got to be sure that we don't let the New Age movement co-opt angels. Because when an unbeliever says, well, I know I have a guardian angel, if they're a New Ager, they mean they have a spirit guide, which, you know, is not a, probably a demon. It's not an angel. But yeah, I think angels are everywhere. And being a pastor, you hear some of these stories that they might not tell other people because they're afraid people will think they're wacko. But, you know, I'll get, you know, you might get this, Pastor, can I tell you something that happened and they tell you the angel story and so I've heard them and, and they're wonderful. Yeah, being a writer that I am, I can't write these stories down because people basically swore me to confidentiality. But what you're saying, Tom, is exactly true and and I can't even count the number of times people have come and said, let me tell you what happened and, and give me your opinion. Was mm -hmm. this an angel from the Lord? Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting to hear these conversations. 
I think the spiritual need is there because Solomon said eternity is already in our hearts. So whether you're a believer or a non-believer, that need is there for that intermediary and that presence of the Lord. We know who these angels are in the sense that they're from the Lord Jesus Christ, where the world has no idea whether they're angels, demons, yep. or where it's their own mind. Can I can I just add this, though? I, yesterday I, I was watching a Christian television network, and this guy was with great fervor and certainty was talking about how the angels in Genesis 6 who may be cohabitated with women. It's a difficult text. We're not sure that's one. I mean, going into this thing about aliens coming to our planet, and they were on and on, just, it was just, and people are nodding their heads like, this is biblical. So just, you know, I believe in angels, I believe in demons, but they're not aliens. And, yeah. and any time, I mean, this guy, he was so persuasive. He was very articulate, just spouting off about stuff that's nowhere in the Bible, but making you think it is. Well, that's why aren't we as Christians watching these shows or in these audiences speaking up to these people? Mm-hmm. You know, I want to respect people, but when they're trying to teach something that's really off the wall. Yeah. And a couple of times in my life, I've actually stood up in services and said, that's not right. Or that's not biblical. I remember when you did that when I was preaching, Tom. Yeah. And it and it worked, and you straightened yourself out. <laughs> <laughs> what a moment. Oh, boy. So angels don't act on their own accord. They're not omniscient or omnipresent. No, they're messengers from they're the Lord. messengers, mm-hmm. right. And they can look like human beings because Hebrews says, be careful how you treat strangers because some of you have entertained angels without knowing it. Right. So what do you think? Do you think we're still... Entertaining angels today. I do. Oh, yeah. yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Peter, talk yeah, I, to I, us. I, 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 I was just deciding if I was going to hazard a story <laughs> about that. But, I, knew, I knew there was something. Oh, I, now your, now that you brain. drew and dragged me into it, yeah, I, guess, I guess I will. Uh, just on a really quick story, I, I had a chance to study in Israel when I was an undergrad. And, and before I left on the trip as part of this uh, the study tour, uh, I proposed to my now wife, Hallie, you know, I wanted to make sure I locked down the deal before we left the country. <laughs> and, and, uh, <laughs> and when I got to Israel, I told her, I said, you know, hey, I'll just give you a call. But this is well before cell phone and Internet and, and the ease of international travel or anything. And so I, I guess I just figured as a 22-year-old, I could get there and put a shekel in a phone and, and give her a quick call. And we arrived uh, late afternoon uh, in the city of Jerusalem, and we were kind of staying in this institute that was housed in the old walls of the old city where a lot of the biblical events happen. And I went to the front desk and I asked how to make an international phone call. She said, you can't do it here. You've got to go to the special international phone booth place. And, and unfortunately, I only sort of half listened to the directions about where to go and uh, started my walk up the old city wall to where I thought the the phone booth was going to be. And the city was pretty empty at this time, and I got to an intersection and uh, was going to take a right down a hill, which I thought I was supposed to go. And as I started walking that way, a voice called out from behind me and said, hey, can I help you? And the voice was in perfect Midwestern accent English, like what we're speaking right now. And I turned around, and there was a pretty tall figure that was about, I, I would say, about 6'4". I'm trying not to make a fish story out of this. In, in my mind, he's now like 7'6", right? But, <laughs> but at the time, I think he was probably 6'4". But he really, truly was dressed from head to toe in black, black gloves, black hood, uh, a Matrix level. I figured this was Neo from the Matrix. He clearly was going to be housing some weaponry beneath <laughs> his, his garb. And I, I hesitantly went up to him and said, well, I'm just looking for the international phone booth. And he said, well, actually, you want to go that way. And he pointed across the street in the opposite direction that I had been traveling. And sure enough, I did find the phone booth ultimately. 
Uh, but I was about halfway across the street, and I thought, wait a second. And I turned around. It couldn't be more than 15 seconds after I'd started crossing and turned around, and he was nowhere to be seen. And the city was relatively empty, so I, I think I would have seen this figure. And I came to find out later that had I kept going the direction that I had intended on going, that I was heading into a part of Jerusalem that uh, a Westerner and American would definitely not have wanted to go. Hmm. Now, what, what do I make of that story? I don't know. But it, what's been interesting is when I do hazard to tell that story, and then I asked for other people, so do you have any sort of like goofy stories where you don't really know what to think about them? I, I have goofy uh, stories. I can't tell you, right? I mean, how many people have these kinds of stories? And, I, and I'm not going to dogmatically say what happened there, but I'm also not going to discount what might have happened there uh, in the name of feeling wonky about it. So it yeah. was just an interesting time. All right, we'll take a little break. We'll come back. Lots more. Send your questions over, 877-933-2484. Guy Talk is for 90 minutes today, the extended version. We're so glad uh, you're with us today. We'll be right back. Maybe you've jumped in your car, maybe you're heading home, maybe you're stuck in traffic in Hartford. Who knows where you are right now? <laughs> you just don't know for sure. <laughs> All right, here's a question that just came in. It involves Philippians 3, verses 10 and 11. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead— question is, why would I want to participate in his sufferings? How do I do that? And then what is this attaining to the resurrection from the dead? Good question. Oh, I love it. It's a great question. I'll hang question. up and listen. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, when, when you think about it, the first of all, to be kind of worthy to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible always considers that an honor. It's not something that we're to, sh- to shy away from. Peter was so overwhelmed that he was going to be crucified like his master, that he has to be crucified upside down. That's pretty historically accurate. So there's a, there's a power there. And I think what I have seen in countries when I've been overseas where there is persecution, people think like this. They, they look at it and they say, life is hard. We're never going to attain what we want to in this life. I could lose my family. My prayer is that if I, when I suffer, I suffer for the sake of Christ. Because they already assume they're going to suffer. It's just how they suffer and who it's for. And then that word attain, I was, uh, while we were talking, I looked it up uh, in the Greek. It's not so much a concept of achieving something. It's more the concept of coming to or arriving at. I have arrived at the resurrection. I am coming to the resurrection. It is still the Lord's power that makes it happen. But my goal is to walk with Jesus to the very end so that the last moment of life when I breathe my last breath, I'm already at the gates of eternity. Hmm. And, and we aren't raised yet. There is an attaining that has to be done. And if you remember when, G, when the uh, Sadducees were trying to catch Jesus about the woman that had seven, hundreds, seven husbands, and then he died, and then she goes to the resurrection, which, hus, which wife shall she be of which husband? Uh, and Jesus said, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age or the resurrection, one of those two words, um, neither marry nor are given in marriage. So there, you know, there's, 
uh, he, he's talking about that in the next age or resurrection, you need to attain it. And Jesus uses the words, those who are considered worthy. Now, there's a sense in which nobody's worthy, but there's another sense, because he said it, that it must be a worthiness that gets us there. So we're not we're not raised yet. We're, we need to attain. Paul says, uh, you know, um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for God, who is, is the one who's at work in you. We don't work our salvation, but we do work it out. You know, we have to work it out. So Christ did the work. It's finished. We're saved by grace alone. But when you're saved by grace alone, you fight. Well, sure. And you walk with Jesus and you cling to him no matter what the circumstances are. You know, I had an older brother who's now deceased. Doug was 10 years older. He took care of me when I was a a small child. Nobody would hurt me when Doug was around. Doug was always there and I could depend on him. Jesus is exactly the same way. My confidence is in Jesus, not in how much I've done. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, here's the difference, though. Because I love Jesus, I want to do more than I've ever done before. Mm -hmm. And I think the difference here is whether I'm trying to attain it to get something or I'm trying to attain it because I'm loved by Jesus. Parrish, what did you say the word attain was in the Greek? I haven't heard that. That was really, I think that was helpful. It It means to come to or to arrive at. To come to or arrive at. So would the basic idea of that being that you're willing to walk through the sufferings with the idea of the resurrection in mind, and so that you will you will come to that place knowing that, in the language of Paul, that even though I die, yet I live, and so you're able to bear the, the burden of the midst of the sufferings? Would you say that that would be a fair way to understand that? I think that's a fair that? way to understand that. Here's the problem, as you and I know. The New Testament, or the whole Bible, is an economy of words, because they try to put it in English language so that we can understand it. Too often... If you look at the Greek words, they use one word like attain, where the phrase to come to or to arrive at would give us a a different understanding if we read it that way. It doesn't mean attain's wrong. It's just that if we don't look into it in depth, and this is what pastors should be doing in teaching and preaching, is to give us a fuller understanding. And growing up, I always loved the Amplified Bible because they would always do this. They'd always give you Mm -hmm. all the possible meanings of that particular word in Greek. Or there's the old song, if you don't bear the cross, you can't wear the crown. That's kind of that verse. Yeah. We need to share in his sufferings and attain to the resurrection. Yeah. Again, it, it's all by his grace we do that, but it's got to be done. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting, too, because I'm thinking now about Jesus's willingness in Gethsemane. Though he was saying, let this cup pass from me, he, he was very clear on what was in front of him, too. And so he said, nevertheless, let your will be done, knowing the suffering that was awaiting him, but he still somehow saw a joy set before him, right? And and he walked it all the way out to the cross to the point where then he was able to say, okay, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, thus emptying himself and walking into those waters of death. Uh, when, and, and Paul reflects on that later, right? In Romans 8, he says, so if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, how much more will he bring life to your mortal body? And And so it seems to be this incredible promise that uh, when we are faced with the suffering, even the potential suffering that has the intensity of death associated with it, that we can fix our eyes as Jesus did towards a different kind of life that's coming. It, it's a it's a profound promise. I, I would I would dare I say that the good news of the gospel really is really good news. Well, you know, Peter, how much you and I love Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oh yeah. To me, yeah. that is the epitome of what we're talking about here, because they said to Nebuchadnezzar, who was telling them they had to bow down to this image, or go into the fiery furnace. You know, our God can save us. And that's where a lot of teaching and preaching we want to stop because we like the positive. But even if he does not, O mm-hmm. King, we will not bow down to you and we will not honor you. So it's not like I'm looking for a fiery furnace. 
I'd rather avoid every fiery furnace I can come upon. However, when the fiery furnace stands between me and my Lord Jesus Christ, if I if I deny him or don't serve him, then with his help and by his grace, we walk into the furnace. And, you know, I, I pray for the persecuted church often on Tuesdays. Yeah. And... What the what I pray normally is, Lord, may persecuted Christians not deny you. May they Absolutely. die before they would deny you. And then I have to stop and say, Lord, may I die before I would deny you. Right. But then I add, but if they do deny you, Lord, may they repent, you forgive them and take them back. And I'm thinking mm. of Peter, who three times did But, you know, I really hope if anybody puts a gun to my head and says, curse Christ or die, I hope I'll let them pull the trigger. But I, I'm so weak, I'm afraid... What so I pray now, God give me the strength at that moment that I'll I'll die for you before I would mm. deny you. Here's I the think, good. You know, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Peter. Oh, just quickly. I think I, as you were talking, Brock, I've, I've entertained that question. I'm sure many listeners have as well. But I've never really thought about the flip side. I, I've never th- really thought so. What would I be giving my life towards in this world that is more important than um, than not denying Christ in that moment, right? Like, what would I be saying yes to in this world? In denying Christ, would I be saying, yeah, this deal is more important? And when I, when I think about that, even my love for my family and just uh, the, the profound joy that that is on so many different levels— uh, there is a transientness to it, right? Like it kind of reveals that there isn't really anything else in this world that mm-hmm. I would want to hang on to more than giving up my life. And and uh, and I think that just speaks to the sweetness of, of Jesus and, and the sufficiency of, of following him. But but I also fear that at times, gosh, I wonder if I am really hanging out of this world so tightly that mm-hmm. that would even be an open-ended question yeah. in that moment. I mean, it can happen in little ways, too. I Five years ago, I went to my high school reunion. And I just went to the. How many? How many years? I'm an old guy. I just went to listen. I just went to my fiftieth high school reunion this weekend. Wow! It is surreal to look in the faces that you haven't looked into for fifty. It was like the Twilight Zone. It was wonderful. And, and how I, did people feel when they looked into your face? <laughs> but you know, five years five years ago, I went, and and the guy says, "Well, Tom, will you pray for the meal before we eat?" And I said, "Yes." And then I'm kind of worrying about it during the day. Here's all these believers, unbelievers, uh, regular 700 people, uh, maybe more like 300 were there. And then I thought, am I going to pray in Jesus' name at this meal? And then after struggling, I thought, you better. Of course. And so, you know, but there's a little way I could have, in a sense, denied the Lord. Mm-hmm. And and but but you got to pray it through, and I you know swallowed my nerves and said in Jesus name, Amen. Yeah. So there you go. I'll take a little break. We we'll come back. Lots more guy talk. Send your questions over eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four, or you can also send them to Bill at myfaithradio.com. We'll be right back with guy talk or guys who talk in just a minute.
Wednesday afternoon, and it is time for Guy Talk. Guys, who talk? I got a couple of pastors and a professor. I've got just about uh, three guys that are ready to take your questions. 877-933-2484. Here's an interesting question from my wingman, Terry. He said, on the question on why congregation members aren't questioning pastors on teaching subjects that aren't biblical, could part of it be they're timid and apprehensive on confronting their pastors, and many others are just biblically illiterate. It's fear. Mm-hmm. When when you see a pastor preaching heresy, and nobody says boo about it in the congregation, I think what you get is, well, he's been to seminary, he knows more than I do, I'm just trusting what he's saying is true. And that is why pastors are getting away with all kinds of evil teaching in the pulpit, we're talking universalism, that everybody goes to heaven, that there's no hell. We're talking the sexual issues. We're talking all kinds. And, and it, it could we have one saint stand up and have a spine and say, Pastor, what what did you just teach? I mean, I, I, I remember once a lady, sweetest lady in the church, called me up, Pastor Brock, can, can I talk to you about something? Uh, oh, sure. Well, can I come in? Sure. And, and she came into the office and, oh, can I, can we pray before I talk to you about this? I said, sure. And we prayed. And she came out with a criticism. She did it so lovely, lovingly and humbly. I couldn't not hear her. Uh, and And so I'm saying be humble about it, be loving about it, but be like this lady and have the courage to do it, you know? <clears throat> one of the fall, one of the breakdowns in Christianity is that most churches that have church elders do not operate as elders mm-hmm. biblically. Elders have nine responsibilities that I found in the scriptures, and I've actually taught this. One of them is to maintain the truth of the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And when the pastor says something that's not the truth or goes in the wrong direction, mm-hmm. they literally are commanded to stand up and literally say something at the time. The problem is we don't do that because we we're all so polite, we're so kind. And people get away with it. But you can't follow everybody home and say, you know, that really wasn't true. That's where the problem comes in. But when an elder will stand up and do that, do it lovingly. I agree with Bill. Do it lovingly. Do it kindly. But say, Pastor, I don't see the biblical basis for this. Can you help me understand this? Yesterday, I found out that a dear Pastor Paul Swedberg, Lutheran Mm -hmm. pastor who was like 90, died. And he was a godly biblical pastor over a church in Florida. And I, I went to the, the website for the church that he pastored in the 1990s, and I looked at it today, and the woman pastor is announcing her pronouns before she greets people. And then they have this series on how on, on LGBT stuff, and the Bible doesn't really say what it says. And I just grieved. And that said to me, a church can go from good to horrible within about a decade, if they get the wrong pastor in the pulpit. And that's why I would encourage our leaders, be loving and humble about it. But if your pastor violates Scripture, lovingly, humbly take him aside. Mm -hmm. And if it's bad enough and it lasts long enough, and you've tried, I'd go to another church. Yeah. All right, I've got a little bit of cleanup to do. We had a question on Philippians 3, 10 and 11. I guess I didn't quite ask the question in its entirety, so I want to uh, complete the thought here. The question is, I still have an unanswered uh, regarding Philippians 3.11. Why somehow attain to resurrection? Don't all believers yeah. rise again to heaven? Why the word somehow? Yeah, yep. that, that is what I thought of when, he, when that verse was read. Because that's kind of a difficulty. Because Paul knew he was saved. 
And he, he talked about, you know, uh, just we have peace with God in, in Romans. So why does he say, some versions say, if perhaps I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Well, is it possible that Paul knew he had to fight the good fight? And if he didn't, he wasn't going to attain to the resurrection of the dead. I mean, I, I, I just, I, I know the Calvinists, and I'm kind of a Calvinist in some ways, believe once saved, always saved. But if you preach that right, you're only sure you're saved if you endure to the end. And if you are follow Christ and then reject him, you're not saved anymore. And the Calvinists would say you never really were to begin with because God will keep you once he does. But the, the fact that Paul says, if perhaps I might attain to the resurrection of the dead, or if somehow, that says to me that Paul knew he had to fight the fight. You know, yeah, I'm just waiting. I'm waiting for go, Parrish to get into the Greek again. Oh, I've, I've already looked. And, and here's the problem. Uh, and I know this happens, depends on translators. Here's yep. what the verse actually says in Greek. It says, that by any means I may attain the resurrection yep. of the dead. The word possible doesn't exist in the Greek. That was put in by the translators to make it either more understandable or they had some reasoning for it. And that's ready to go back to like the ESV or the RSV or whatever and see what their reasoning what was. What does ESV say? ESV you know? says possible. It's got if, the word if possible. possible. Yeah, well, it just says po- means... That by any means possible, I may attain the okay, resurrection no, of the dead. Okay, that makes it a little easier. You know, yeah. Yeah, here, no. that by any means, I may attain uh, the resurrection of the dead. But the and fact he's referring that he says, back to what Jesus had done. I, I could be wrong on this, Tom, but the fact that he says may makes you wonder what's going on there, you know? <clears throat> yeah, but here's the thing that I, I look at on this. The scriptures are consistent. They are not inconsistent in what they say. The problem is the way we sometimes look at it or translate it. And I'm not saying, you know, skip your translations because not everybody's going to read Greek or Hebrew. They don't have to. But look at a number of translations. Mm-hmm. Look at a, a number of passages that talk about this. I know I go to the Internet. There's some place on the Internet where this particular verse or any verse in the Bible, I can look at in 50 different translations. And I often do that just to see what flavor is out there. Mm-hmm. Tom, I perish. I think what you just said is just so critical. I'm sitting on a page with a lot of different translations, and, and you have anything from like New American Standard that is in order that I may attain to if by any means I might attain King James, assuming that I will reach the resurrection. Uh, perhaps I will come with the confidence that I'll come. There's just a lot of different translations. And I, it's one of those situations that I think bears mentioning that it, it's not like scholars are taking the English words from the first century that Paul wrote in, since he, since he was not writing in English, and, and then somehow just dictating them to us. They, they're taking manuscripts from the original language and doing their best to translate it yes. into English. And, any, and anybody who knows a foreign language knows that there are all you're doing is you're trying to take concepts and experiences and ideas, and then you're trying to arrange symbolic characters, in our case, 26 letters of the English alphabet. You're trying to arrange them in some way, to, to communicate something about um, a non-material concept or idea or whatever. And that gets really difficult, especially when you go across languages. And so what, what they do is maybe 10, 12, 15, 18 scholars get into a room together and they do their best to try to take what might be an abstract or an obtuse idea from a different kind of language and translate it using the limitations of 26 characters of the English alphabet. And so... I do, nothing's going to be the perfect one-to-one relationship with what the original text was, 
Um, but that doesn't mean the text is unreliable. It, I, no. I, the Bible is terribly—it has, it has completely resisted any attempts to truly deconstruct its authority and reliability. And, and it is—I uh, fully believe in the inspiration and authority of it. But at the same time, we have to deal with the idea that translators— are doing the best they can yes. to pick some word in English to represent the word that, as far as they understand it, in the Greek, and it's not always going to be a perfect one-to-one relationship, which is why you have so many different translations, which why then, to your parish, circling back, your point is that to read from 10, 15, 20 to kind of get a general idea of what's the most likely situation is really helpful. And I, I too, like the fact that there are two versions that are very literal translations, mm-hmm. the English Standard Version and the New American Standard Bible. Yep. And then yep. you've got the ones that are, well, the Amplified mm-hmm. kind of takes, well, big liberties. It the, does. The Living Bible takes huge liberties. And so I would just stick with ESV uh, NASB King James is pretty literal. Um, uh, I, you know, even the NIV is a little squishy on translating exactly what it said. Sometimes, sometimes I'll look and see what they translated, and that's not quite what the word was in Greek. You know, many, what I mean? yeah. many years ago, I was in Cleveland doing a conference, and I got invited by the translators of uh, God's Word which was done by a bunch of Lutheran scholars, Mm -hmm. which is a great translation. I like it very much. And I went into their conference room where they were actually doing the translating. They were sitting at a big table. There must have been 10 or 15 of them there. They would go through every word, Mm -hmm. every single word, and they'd each come up with their own different understanding of what that meant. And then they'd have to come to a consensus on what that would mean at this moment in this time in Mm -hmm. America or an English reader. Mm -hmm. You think about the difficulty of that. It is enormous. And so I appreciate what they do, and I'm not critical of them at all. It's just that we have to be real careful, and we we want to look at the totality of Scripture, not just an individual verse to base our theology on. Individual verses can get you in trouble. Yeah, what you just said is so important, Parrish, because at the same time, Paul is saying in other passages, something we referenced earlier in the show, which is that he knew that even though he would die, yet he would live. He talks about the idea that I would actually rather pass from this life into the life that is to come, but I have to stay here for a short mm-hmm. period of time for your benefit. Or he says at other times when he's in prison saying things like, I have run the race, I finished the fight, I know what's waiting for me. Yeah. And so if we just pull this verse out and think, gosh, maybe Paul was a little uncertain about yeah. this whole deal. Like yeah. you you have to look at the totality of the witness yeah. of Scripture and yeah. it help verses interpret other verses. There it's you an go. incredibly helpful process. That's right. The, Scripture interprets Scripture. All right, gentlemen, in Ecclesiastes 3, uh, verse 11, it says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. What do you understand to this part of the verse that says He has set eternity in the human heart? What does that mean? There is a longing in every individual for the eternal. I don't think there's a person I've met anywhere in the world, and I've lived in jungles and I've lived among uh, uh, people that had nothing, literally. That eternity desire is there because almost everybody around the world says, this is it. This is what life's all about, these few short years that we're here and the craziness that goes on and, and children die, you know, at an enormous rate of starvation or malnutrition. No, it's more than that, and that's why eternity is so big. And those of us that have been given time in this world, need to be 
forthright in proclaiming that eternity and helping draw it out of people so they can find the, the truth about, about what that means and then apply it to the way they live and treat others. Who is it that said there's a God-shaped vacuum? Pascal. In, okay. God-shaped vacuum in every human heart. And if you try to fill that vacuum with something else, it rattles because it doesn't fit. The only thing that perfectly fits the God-shaped vacuum in every human heart is God. And I kind of think that's what that verse is talking about. He's put eternity in everyone's heart. There's this vacuum in our heart, this emptiness that only God can fill. Mm, I like that. Yeah. Well, how does Jesus define eternal life? You know, he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is not just a place. It's a relationship. Mm-hmm. And I don't care if the streets are paved with gold and there are emeralds everywhere. I mean, it's great language. But basically, the contrast of that is it's a beautiful place, but it's nothing compared to being with the Lord Jesus himself. Yeah, I, I, I love what a, a theologian once said about um, a, a baby in the womb is developing things in the womb that are not actually usable within the womb, meaning that there's no real point to have eyes when it's pitch black inside the, room, the womb, and there's no point in having hands and feet to speak of. The, the, these things are being developed from and for a different kind of place. And right. so I, I love that example in saying that it, the eternity that's in our hearts means that we actually can know and long for the place to where we actually belong. And and uh, and we have that hole, as you said, uh, as Pascal said, but that as you referenced Brock too, just that, that represents that. There's things going on in, that this world simply can't satisfy in its fullness that are being developed in us, that, that are the world, the realm of eternity, not just the, the temporal existence of this world. Keep your questions coming, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Guy Talk, uh, for another 45 minutes, we're going to do the extended version today and go to 5.30 Central Time. Again, 877-933-2484. I talk, or guys who talk. I've got Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Peter Kapsner as the power panel today. All right, here's a question. Uh, what do you guys think when you hear someone say that they are spiritual? This listener says, I know someone who says this, but I have no idea what it really means. How do you investigate <laughs> when that? When I was at my high school reunion this weekend, here's a friend that I had 50 years ago called Steve. I remember having a couple religious discussions with him. And I, I haven't seen him for 50 years. And I said to him, you know, Steve, you know, I remember having some religious discussions with you. And he said, a spiritual, not religious discussions. And I'm, he didn't elaborate, but I think these people who say I'm spiritual, not religious, I think often that means I've dumped organized religion. My religion is spirituality, which means I believe whatever I darn well want to. <laughs> I'm the god of my new religion. And, you know, when somebody says, well, I don't believe in organized religion, I think of saying, what do you want, unorganized religion? And that's what they want. They don't want anybody, God included, to tell them uh, what to believe. So I'm not religious, but 
I'm spiritual. Well, what's a good way of um, asking the next question to find out Tom Parrish? Well, you, if they tell me that they're spiritual, then I will say to them, tell me all the, the uh, research you've done, how you come to that conclusion, and give me a synopsis of what your spirituality really means and drives you through life. And then I shut up. <laughs> and I've had people sit there and just look at me like, oh, well, nobody's ever asked me that before. The problem is we let people get away with this language. I was on a, with a hunting party many years ago uh, with a guy from our church. His brothers and cousins were there. And at the camp, what I thought was interesting is one guy was talking away and he says, he kept saying, the wife, the wife, my wife, the wife. Finally, I looked at him. I said, does she have a name? And he stopped. And everybody got a big grin on their face. <laughs> yeah. Well, what is that name? Sue. Oh, well, it'd be nice to call her Sue because she's a person. <laughs> the problem with spirituality is it wants to avoid the name. And can I give an example? Yeah. Here's here's an example. Years ago, Oprah was pushing the Eckhart Tolle book. Oh, yeah. Very new age. And she said on a radio, on a TV show, you can Google this. She said, I was raised Baptist. I used to believe that Jesus came to earth to die for our sins. Now I believe Christ came to earth to get us in touch with our own inner Christ consciousness, meaning we're all the Christ. That to me is spirituality, that I don't submit to God's religion. I make up my own, and I am the Christ. Well, what's the problem always been since the Garden of Eden? Who's in charge around here? Mm -hmm. And people want to be God, and spirituality fits that. Yeah, I, th I was um, just on one other angle of this when we were talking earlier about um, the the question came in about why do we confront our pastors and we're scared, especially if they're teaching something um, biblical. Like, I really do sympathize with the view that it, you need to be gathering with other believers. They, mm -hmm. This is not an alone journey, that <clears throat> the, the falsity of Western individualism just in, and the havoc that it's wreaked is just, it's so inconsistent with the kingdom. This, this is a communal journey that we're on. I'm not... Please understand, I'm not advocating for socialism. That's a disaster, too. We're talking about what kingdom community is in in light of all of this. And so I do sympathize with the next generation that does use the language of I'm spiritual and not religious, because what they are intending to say is that the, organiz the, the organized um, reality that they were a part of that was attempting to lead people in spiritual things, that organized reality— was maybe corrupt, or it was fraudulent, or there was um, all kinds of hidden sexual sin going on. There were power plays and strife and gossip. And so um, I, I totally get it when some people are saying, hey, look, I'm just going to do my own and cobble together my own spiritual journey and from, from a variety of different kinds of religious traditions. And, and, and that's out of bounds. I totally get that. But I, there is a different side to this where people are like, I really genuinely want to understand this King of Heaven, this Jesus, and and I remain interested in matters that are spiritual related to him, but I just think the organized reality that I was a part of was a complete disaster in its representation of him. And so I, I don't, I think we need to nuance this conversation a little bit to say that in some cases to be spiritual but not religious really is, it, it gets kind of funky, but in other times we really sympathize that um, I, I think we have underestimated the damage that's been done in the next generation's trust of the current gen and, and previous generations because of just these, these headlines one after another after another. I, I, I'm afraid we've kind of tried to just sweep them under the rug or say, hey, look, 
you know, I guess, yeah, Rabbi Zacharias, well, well, he was sleeping with a bunch of women that weren't his wife. And yeah, he was running massage parlors behind scene. But that's, you know, just the kind of the nature of human sin. His his message was still on point. And, and maybe some of those things are true on some level, but that doesn't mean that they haven't made a dramatic impact on the next generation who are terribly suspicious about organized religion. And, and I think we have to have a reckoning about that and not necessarily sweep it under the rug. So I don't know if that makes sense, but I could see both sides of this no, conversation. No, it's a good discussion. And I, I agree with you. We've done a lot of stupid things. The problem is we haven't handled it well. Too often when people commit these kind of sins or leaders go off the rails, we cover it up. We don't deal with it as we should. We should deal with it straight on. But like I always challenge um, the younger generation when they say these things to me, and, and I love these people dearly, but when they say that, I say, wow, and you apply that same theology to your doctor? You know, there's some really bad doctors out there that are quacks. So you don't go to any doctors at all now. You're doing your own surgery at home. And again, they look at yeah. it and they go like, well, 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 no, well, no. Okay, I understand why you did this with the church. Why aren't you doing it with your doctor then? In other words, we aren't very logical with people. We don't help them think through what they're saying. And we don't, and quite honestly, I would say to them, you're right. There are some really bad churches out there. There really are some bad pastors, but they're not all that way. And yeah, but I, I think... Yeah, I was just going to say, but I, I think, again, if, just to play maybe a little bit of the devil's advocate with that, that if, if I was the victim of, or somebody oh, close yeah. to me was the victim of sexual abuse or something like that, I, I wouldn't say, well, that was just sort of a rogue priest. I'm going to go to the next priest and inherently trust them. Or if it was in a Protestant well, church, I'm going to go back to the pastor. So I, I think, I mean, there are a lot of levels to deal with this, but but I think we're in a season of time um, where there needs to be much more brokenness and repentance by the shepherds and the leaders, even if they Agreed. didn't participate in this, uh, to, to begin to rebuild trust and credibility again, because I, I just did a... Um, a recommendation for a dear friend of mine who was uh, was looking at getting involved in a ministry, and then they called me on this person's behalf, and it, and I took such delight in being able to say, but felt like I had to say in the season of time. I said, and here's the thing, independent of this person's communication skills and the leadership skills that I've observed over time and have been a part of, here's what I know what you're going to get. You're going to get a person of integrity that isn't going to be. Um, you're not going to worry about the, the potential fraudulence down the line that could bring your ministry down. Like I being involved in these circles of vocational ministry, this is people, it's it's the mastodon in the room that people are wondering about, I think, in a lot of levels. And it was just really nice to be able to say, no, this is a place of integrity. Or sometimes during the Faith Radio Share event, I will say, and I'm down to my toes, I'm like, you just need to know as you support the ministry here, behind the scenes, I couldn't actually be at the microphone here if behind the scenes there was any form of wonkiness going on uh, that, that would maybe lead people to question what's happening. And mm -hmm. And so I think we're in a season of time where there's a lot of trust that needs to be rebuilt if there's going to be any credibility. I, I really do think the witness has been compromised in ways that we don't often appreciate. I mean, well, go ahead, Tom. I'm, I'm just thinking, could the devil be more clever than have priests and pastors sexually Ugh. abuse children? I mean, isn't yeah. that from hell? I can't Ugh. think of anything more from hell than that. And so I totally agree with you, Peter. I got to do say one thing, though. I heard of a, a bishop who said, I'm not spiritual, I'm religious. <laughs> and I like that, because I think the point was, uh, look, n uh, we don't make up our own spirituality. I want to be hooked into a, quote, religion, if I can use that word, that's been around for 2,000 years, not something I want to invent on my own. Yeah, with young people, and Peter, you have much more opportunity with them than I do. 
I would really be interested in some kind of a longitudinal study. How many of these kids that are turned off to religion or turned off to the church were actually abused? I think it's a common mantra. Oh, yeah, well, my cousin was abused or, you know, this and that. Well, maybe they were. God forbid. And I think this has probably gone on for 2,000 years to some form. The question is, how much different is that than everything else out there in the world? Because of sinful nature and sinful people, including those in the pulpit, Jesus did not give us an out from the church. He didn't say, hey, because we got some bad disciples, yep. stay home. So how do we reconcile the two is what I'm really interested in. And, and I think Peter's point that there are people that have been heavily damaged by the sure. church, we got to hear that. Sure. We also have to hear that people that want an excuse never to go back to church again can find some pretty flim. I mean, I remember my senior pastor when I worked under him talked about some man that held up some yellow paper and saying, this is the reason I don't go to church anymore, because gumpteen years ago I got a letter from the church saying, if I don't attend the church, I can't be a member. Well, then I'm never going back to that church. And this guy had his eternal excuse not to go to church because the church wrote him a letter that I probably would have written him, look, where are you, you know? But um, so I think there's valid reasons that Peter just enumerated that we need to hear. We also need to realize, given human nature, lots of people don't go to church uh, because they're offended as an excuse. All right, we're going to take a little break. We're going to continue Guy Talk, extended version today. We're going to go another 30 minutes. Then Pastor Colin Smith is going to be joining me in the second hour. So send your questions over to 877-933-2484. Guy Talk will continue for 30 more minutes. Again, 877-933-2484. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.